as we come down through 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to come to a phrase that really challenges us to think about who we are and what we think about ourselves and what we think about others. In some ways, it's really the heart of this list of, of virtues of love. Read with me, please. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own. We're going to talk today about this little phrase, love does not seek its own. Love is not self-focused. There's a lot of words we could use for that. We could use the word selfish. We could use the word self-centered. And we need to understand some things from God's word, and it's going to challenge us greatly. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to state the fact that we all tend to want our own way. Whatever it is. If it's time for dinner, you know, have you, have you ever... There was a commercial on a few years ago where the husband and wife were going to decide where to go to dinner. Where do you want to go to dinner? Oh, I'm wide open. How about Chinese? Well, I don't want that. I'm, but I'm wide open, you know, and, and it turns out it really wasn't wide open. We all want our own way. It is the human condition. It is not from one person to another. Or even sometimes those who appear to not want their own way do want people to notice them, perhaps for their givingness. The source of our selfishness is the fleshly nature. The New Testament uses this word flesh to describe the natural condition of mankind without God. And that is the source of selfishness. It's not something we are taught. Oh, I understand that people can be raised to be more giving or less giving. I understand that. But it's something that is inherent within us. And we read about it uh, in a passage like this. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. He's going to contrast the new life and the old life here. In which, in the old life, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also, Paul's talking about himself, he says, all of us Christians once conducted ourselves in the desires of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Some of us who have been Christians a while, when we read that phrase, desires of the flesh, we automatically think of sexual sin, and that is not what it's talking about. It's much broader than that. The word desire there, or lust, means just that, a strong desire, and then it's modified by the word flesh. In other words, what is the natural desires of the normal human being? And th this passage is saying the way that most human beings live, the way that all human beings lived until they come to faith in Christ, is they live according to the desires that well up within them. And one of those desires is all about being self-centered and self-focused. Self-centered living is as natural as the flesh in which we are born. The sinful nature you inherited from Adam causes you to surrender to the innate desire to please yourself. 
when human beings are driven by the lusts of the flesh or the strong desires of our humanity, we are acting out our own self-interest. It is just as natural as being born to be self-focused. As I thought about how we might understand this a little bit better, the passage that I was drawn to is one we've looked at a number of times, which is called the works of the flesh or the things that the flesh naturally does. And we're gonna, I want to read this and then I want to think about these things in terms of self-centeredness. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Our fleshly nature drives us to get sexual satisfaction through any means possible. The first four words in that list have to do with sexual sin. And as we would think about self-centeredness, the way it works out in our life is this. A a natural human being without the Lord says, I want sexual satisfaction. And so if if it means committing adultery, that's okay because I have to be satisfied. If it means fornication, which is any sexual activity outside of outside of marriage uh, that's okay because I have to be satisfied the words uncleanness and lewdness have to do with what we might call uh, abnormal or not usual sexual relationships homosexuality fits into one of those categories or all of the other perverse things that we see in our world but the concept here is this I have to be satisfied and so I will manipulate my girlfriend if I have to I will go outside the bounds of my marriage if I have to. I will not wait till marriage. I'll do whatever it takes because I have to be satisfied. It's all about me. That's the natural way. The second uh, phrase, the second word here would be this. Our fleshly nature worships whatever will satisfy our own desires. The word is idolatry in the list. People make religions that suit them. There is a very well-known, very large religion that originally taught that men should have multiple wives. Now, they had a great theology to support this. They said, out there in the heavens, there are souls waiting to be born. And if you don't have lots of wives and have lots of children, you're doing a disservice to those souls. All I got to say is that religion was invented by a man. And it suited him. He created a worship system that suited him. People like whatever, whatever pats them on the back religiously is what they like. Our fleshly nature allows us. Now, understand that I'm talking about how the natural man thinks and acts. I'm not endorsing any of this. Okay, you understand that. This is how people are without Christ. The fleshly nature allows us to dislike those people who do not cooperate in our plans. That's how I've seen hatred. If somebody comes along and does something you don't like, they do something to stop you or slow you down, think, I'm done with you, buddy. It's okay because you are not cooperating with me. You aren't singing that worship song we just talked about. You aren't saying it's all about you, and so I have no time for you in my life. And the fleshly nature justifies that somehow. Our fleshly nature encourages us to do anything necessary to come out on top. The word contention 
means to argue and fight and strive. The reason people do that is because they aren't getting their way. We see that in our homes as our children are young and growing up. One child has a toy and the other child says, give me that toy. And if it doesn't happen, boom, there's a contention. And that's because the fleshly nature says you do anything you need to to get what you want. Our fleshly nature pursues relationships to get things. Jealousy is when you have something I want, and so I will come after you to get that thing. We call that being used. Our fleshly nature enables us to feel justified in our anger. You've heard, you've heard the uh, explanations well, I just blow up, then it's over. It's like, that's my nature. I, I can do that. That's the way I am. Or they had it coming. Okay? Well, they might have had it coming, but that's God's business. But our fleshly nature says you were justified in what you did. Our fleshly nature causes us to be driven by our own plans. Uses the word selfish ambitions in the text. I have a plan. I'm going somewhere. I'm doing something. That's all that matters is my plan. Our fleshly nature causes us to fight to get our own way. The word dissension is there. The idea of if, if things aren't going my way, I'm going to fight. I'm going to complain. I'm going to argue. And our fleshly nature makes that seem natural and normal. Hey, they aren't doing the right thing for me, so I am going to be contentious or I'm going to dissent. Our fleshly nature will form a group to support our opinions. The word heresy is an interesting word. If, if you've been around church any time, you know that a heresy is a wrong doctrine or a false doctrine or a twisted doctrine. You know, like, like there's a church that believes Jesus wasn't the Son of God. They believe he was a prophet. That's a heresy. So when we see the word heresy, we tend to think of, of a wrong doctrine. But the root meaning has to do with forming a group. And the idea is this, if you don't like what I'm saying, I'm going to get all the people that do and we're going to go off over here and have our little group together and have this, this aberrant idea together. And our fleshly nature says that's perfectly okay. These people aren't smart enough to agree with me, so I'll take the ones who are and go off on my own thing. Our fleshly nature drives us to outdo others. Envy is nothing more than wanting to be the best, wanting to be seen as the best. I don't want anybody else to get more credit than I get. And our fleshly nature says that's absolutely normal. Our fleshly nature makes us go to any length to establish our superiority. I've, that's what I've put next to murder. And I've put that because if you go back and read Genesis chapter 4, when Cain murdered Abel, it was because Cain wasn't seen as uh, acceptable and good enough in what he wanted to do, even though God gave him the opportunity to do better, he didn't like it. So he said, I will do whatever I have to so that I will be the superior one, even all the way to murder. Our fleshly nature wants us to feel good at any cost. If there's one thing that describes human flesh is I want to feel good. When I go to work, I want to feel good. When I come home, I want to feel good. When, you know, when I'm in childbirth, I want to feel good. 
And if I don't, then kick in the drugs, buddy. And obviously that's a more legitimate time to do that. But you know what happens when people go home from the hospital from their pain? They just keep taking those pain pills, don't they, sometimes? Because they've got to feel good. I don't care about whatever you're saying. I've got to feel good. People can't deal with the pressures at work, and so they can't wait to get home and have a drink and feel good. And our fleshly nature says, you deserve to feel good. We go, yeah, I do deserve that. And so whatever it takes, drunkenness, and the word revelry has to do with essentially what we'd call a drunken party or a just, you know, I mean, <laughs> drunkenness to the 10th power or whatever, just all kinds of crazy stuff and the like. That is the, that is the impact of our fleshly nature on our life. But there's good news. There's good news because that's not where we have to live as a Christian. We may live there. But we don't have to because 2 Corinthians 5 says this, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. No Christian needs to be known according to that fleshly nature. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I sat this week looking through the glass into the jail visiting a fellow there in jail, talking on the phone. And I just said, it doesn't matter what you've done. You can be a new person in Christ. Boy, his eyes got kind of watery, you know. Isn't that incredible that no matter what you've done, no matter how wicked your flesh has made you, you can be a new person in Christ. And that is the potential that is ours. The problem is that sometimes as Christians, we don't... We don't quite believe that that new way is the best way. And we go back and live in those ways we've been looking at. Because there's a, still a struggle with our nature. Even though we're a new person in Christ, there's a struggle. And the struggle is this. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you won't fulfill the strong desires, the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things you wish. There's an important concept here and, and if this is new to you and if you've never understood it, maybe we need to talk about it more at length. But let me just share it briefly. Romans chapter 6 very clearly says this, Christian, I'm talking to Christians now, sin cannot control you. There, you know, if, if you're old enough to remember Flip Wilson, he used to say, the devil made me do it. Not true for the born-again Christian. You are free from the enslavement of sin. Now, what this verse is talking about, not that your flesh controls you, but that your flesh pulls on you. As a Christian, you have the opportunity to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit, but as a Christian, the struggle goes on. 
and the, the patterns that you have lived in as an unbeliever or the, or the sinful patterns you haven't dealt with yet as a Christian pull on you. Your flesh pulls on you. And so there are, you know, while you might not be wanting to murder anybody, you might be wanting to kind of form your own group or some of those other things that we saw in that list because your flesh is pulling on you. But at the same time, the spirit is pulling on you. And so there is a struggle in the Christian life. And what I want to try to define for you today is to say, what is the, how does the spirit life look when it comes to this issue of self-centeredness? And so I, I've made a series of statements here about what it means to be spirit-driven, and, and I, I hope this communicates the idea. There, there's so many things to talk about in this chapter and even on this phrase, but First of all this, the spirit-driven person wants Christ to be seen. As we think about the the essence of being self-centered, the essence is, I want to be seen. I want to be noticed. I know I'm going to go way out on the edge and I'm probably going to step on some toes and I'm probably going to be misinterpreted or misunderstood, but I'm going to risk it today. Okay, and in the examples that I use today, I please hope, I please hope, I, I want you to understand that I don't think everybody is this way, and I'm not thinking about particular people here, but one comes to mind. When a woman gets new clothes or a new hairdo, what does she want? When a guy gets a new car, tool, fill in the blank, what does he want? He wants his wife come home and go, oh, look at that table saw, boy, that's a Hummer there, boy. (laughs) And that's just as far out as him looking at her going, oh, I noticed three of your hairs were cut today, you know. But the question is this. It's, not, it's good for a husband to notice his wife, and it's good for a wife to notice her husband. Don't get me wrong. But the question is, what is driving your desire for that attention? To really think that through. That's what I want to challenge you with today. Because the spirit-driven person wants Christ to be seen. It's not about me. It is about Christ. Listen, the, the, uh, John the Baptist... John the Baptist was born three or four months before Jesus. He was the God-ordained prophet to turn Israel to listen to Jesus. One scripture says that all Israel was going out into the desert to listen to him. John was the pastor of the first mega church, if you will. I mean, they were all flocking out there. And they came to John, some of his disciples, some of John's disciples, and they said, Rabbi or teacher, he, Jesus, who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. You know what we call this now? We call this a turf war. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, he rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He, 
must increase, but I must decrease. This is the essence of selflessness. Who do you want to be seen? You or Jesus? Oh, this is a tough this is a tough battle because we want to be noticed. We did something good. We, 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 we cooked something good. We, we created something good. We did a, a really good job at work. Or, or we, you know, we did this thing on the sports team and we want people to notice us. Oh, it's down in our soul. But is there any thought about how we could exalt Jesus through those great things that we do? Because he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Isn't it crazy, if you really think about it, us human beings finally do something good, and we want everybody to pat us on the back, when the truth is, the reason we were able to do something good is because Christ did something in us. And he gave us a gift and he helped us. The selfless person wants Christ to be seen. Christian, God wants us to give up personal recognition in favor of making Jesus known God wants you to be so others-oriented that people will say, that person must know Jesus, rather than, isn't that a great person? Do you want Christ to be seen so much that you will care for others without regard to recognition? Believe me, I'm preaching to myself here too, folks. That's a challenging thought. Am I willing to care? Am I willing to just work without caring that God gets the credit. The selfless life. Secondly, spirit-driven person wants disciples to be made. We want God to be seen. We want disciples to be made. Now, I'm using the word disciple-making in the broad sense of the work of God in the church. Everything about sharing the gospel so people come to faith in Christ about uh, working here together, whether it's teaching Sunday school or cleaning the building or whatever you do, everything that cooperates together to help people know Christ and grow up in him. That's what I'm lumping together in disciple-making. And so as I thought about this, I thought, you know, a spirit-driven person wants disciples to be made even if it costs their time. The Apostle Paul said it this way, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. I'm have, the Lord is teaching me all of these lessons every day when I go to breakfast. I had the newspaper in my car yesterday. My wife knows I get the newspaper when I go to McDonald's. In the morning I had the newspaper there. She said, didn't you read the paper? I said, nope. <laughs> That's because God brought me somebody who needs to know the Lord. And about a week ago, I finally just decided, I, I, I quit the battle about a week ago. And the battle was, do I get to read my paper and eat my breakfast and have my own little time or do I need to talk to 
this person. And I finally, about a week and a half ago, I just said, that's it. If he's there, he's the priority. He's more important. Now, now think how stupid this is, okay? And I'm sharing you with it because I'm sharing you where I'm struggling. But think how stupid it is. He's more important than me reading the newspaper. Duh. But isn't that where we live? I want my time. I give all of my time to all those people all day long. That's my time. Really? This guy is, he's thinking. I gave him a book to read. He, I mean, we, we have, I'm not kidding you when I say we have theological discussions every day and I don't start one of them. He is thinking, I think he's going to come to the Lord. But not if I can't lay down my stinking newspaper. That's what I'm talking about. Am I willing to give up my time for him? I get here a half an hour or so later every day because I'm sitting there talking to him. And there's a real temptation to think, I've got things to do. (laughs) That's it. Isn't that how we live? No, he's what I've got to do. And I've just... I hope I learned this lesson so well that I'll start to think this way all the time. I'm reading a book that's talking about how you communicate cross-culturally and how you connect and talked about our concept of time. Boy, it just challenged me to say, just lay down your preconceived ideas, Dave, and just live for the Lord and let God do what he's going to do with your schedule during the day. But in order to do that, I have to say, I am going to give all my time to God. And he's going to use it the way he sees fit. That's a tough one. I think it's harder these days to get time from you folks than it is to get money. And there was a time when that wasn't true. If we went back 40 years, it was way easier to have people here at the building all the time. But money was hard to come by. It's kind of an evidence of the affluence of our society. And I'm not criticizing you. I think it's that way everywhere. But the challenge is to say, do I care so much about making disciples, that is being others-oriented, that I will even sacrifice my time? That's a tough one. But the Apostle Paul, you see what he did? He he didn't just stand up and preach the gospel and say, 12 o'clock, time to go. And he went to his house and they went to their house. He said, no, he invested his life in people. That's what God is calling us to do, to invest our lives in people. A spirit-driven person wants to make disciples if it costs their time, even if it costs their freedom. Now, I'm not talking about going to jail for sharing your faith. No, not at all. I'm talking about these kinds of freedoms. The Apostle Paul said, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jew, I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law. And then he has to add a little parenthesis. Now look, I'm not talking about living in sin here that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be a partaker of it with you. I have become all things to all men. This, this ver- the context clearly here is one of saying, I care so much for people to come to the Lord, I'm willing to give up some of my personal freedom in Christ 
Remember, the Apostle Paul was, was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He followed all of their scrupulous little man-made rules that had to do with the Old Testament law. And when he came to faith in Christ, I can imagine him eating a big old ham sandwich. I don't even know if they had ham back then. But he was free. He said, I'm free from all men. But he didn't say, you need to do this and this, and I get to be free. He said, no, I will lay my freedom aside so that I can come alongside of you. Are you willing to let go of some of your rights, whatever those might be, the right to, to live in a certain freedom, the, the right to self-determination, whatever it is, are you willing to give that up so that people can come to Christ? Have you ever purposefully sacrificed a freedom in order to do the work of God? The, well, the one thought that came to my mind immediately was, was Togo. In Togo, it's, this would be a cold day in Togo. Okay? In fact, 90 degrees is cool over there. And in that stiflingly hot place, women do not wear shorts unless they are immoral and so the missionary wives always wear dresses down to about here they give up their freedom not because they buy into the culture and say oh that's the right way but because they're more concerned about making disciples than they are living in their personal freedom even if it costs their money In 1 Corinthians, they had a problem, the Corinthian church, and here's the problem they had. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous? Go to court and not before the saints? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? But a brother goes to law against a brother and that before unbelievers. In other words, they had legal problems between people in the church and they went to the secular court. And he says, that's wrong. Now, therefore, it's already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept the wrong? Ooh, why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and you cheat and you do these things to your brethren. Wow. Are you telling me that God says discipleship and our witness to the world is so important that if we have a legal problem with another Christian, we should come to the church to the wise people in the church and say rule between us and we will accept your ruling and we will not pursue this and make a big stink out in the world because we care more about Christ. Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. I know of somebody here who's already done that once because they had a problem with a brother in another church and they went to that church and said you rule between us. And as I recall, there wasn't a lot of American-style justice dispensed, but there was enough. But the attitude is, I might have to get wronged. I might have to let go of my freedom. Am I willing to do that for Christ? 
We can all look at my newspaper and say, well, of course, that's not more important than this fella. But what about your lawsuit? Oh, well, that's different. A spirit-driven person wants disciples to be made even if it costs their pleasure. This is the most unbelievable thing that, from, the, from the book of 1 Corinthians. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. The people in Corinth followed the tradition of those days, which was they came to church, had a church service, and then they ate together, and then they had the Lord's Supper. And what we are made aware of here is that when they were having their church supper, they all brought food, but they didn't put it all out on a table to share. They brought food, like I've got a piece of roast beef in the oven at home, and they brought set it on their table, and the people at their table ate their roast beef. And over here in the corner, there was a fella standing, or lots of fellas standing that were maybe slaves, didn't have much, and they stood there hungry while those folks ate. Now, why do people do that? That's because they're saying, this is my roast beef, and I'm going to get full of it because it feels good going down my throat. Christian people really do that? They wouldn't do it at a church fellowship dinner, would they? What are you thinking about when you're standing in line? Oh, I hope that guy doesn't take that last chicken breast. What are you thinking about when you're standing in line? Do you know, could I just, I, again, it's not wrong to think about food. I probably think about it at least as much as all of you do. But the question, is there a time when food is not important and other things are more important? And a fellowship dinner is one of those times. And it's because of that word, fellowship. I got news for you. Maybe this is going to really rock your world. We don't have fellowship dinner so you can eat. Seriously. The purpose is... But you know what? If you're going to really embrace that, you have to lay aside some of your pleasure. You really do. Are you willing to say, you know what? There's times for... We'll have Thanksgiving dinner at our house and I'll just eat till it hurts. But there's other times when maybe that's not that important. Even if it costs effort. Romans 15 says, We then who are strong ought to bear with the... Literally, it's the word weaknesses. It's the same word as weak over here. It's kind of a play on words. We then who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good 
leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself. Do you know any Christians that are weak? Maybe some Christian who's in jail. Would a person who's gone to jail as a Christian be considered weak? I think so. And I'm not being overly critical. I'm just saying that points to a significant weakness in their life somewhere. Are you willing to put up with to serve the weaknesses of the weak? Because if you are, it's going to take effort. It's going to take time. Oh. Some of you, I, I, it would be fun to raise, have you raise your hands, but I won't do it and say, how many of you are type A people? You know, you have a, things, a, you have a list of things to do even on your day off. And uh, boy, you've got to march through that list. And then one of these folks comes along. Oh boy, that's tough. Because I'm one of those guys. Are you willing to give up your, your effort? There are times when helping people grow in Christ takes great effort. Teaching a Sunday school class will take effort. And maybe when somebody's coming around asking you to teach, maybe part of the reason you're saying no is, like, hey, I don't have time to put that kind of work in for this. Come on, I got to, you know, go to the club and exercise. Effort, effort. Caring for babies in the nursery is only a labor of love. Because everybody would rather have somebody else listen to them babies cry. Do you want disciples to be made so badly that you would even work in the nursery? That's easy for me to say because I don't have to work in the nursery because I'm standing up here, you know. Not giving up on your children takes great effort at times. Well, let me just conclude with a, with a promise, if I could. A spirit-driven person not only wants disciples to be made at any cost to them personally, but a spirit-driven person wants God to provide for his or her needs. Listen to these familiar verses. Therefore, don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or who's going to give me clothes? For after all these things, the Gentiles focus their lives. For your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. But you, you focus your life on the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The great potential that is ours, Christian, is to lay down our life, to lay down our life, and then see God meet our needs. Do you want to see that? See, our problem is we want God to provide what we want. I want this person, I want this thing, I want this time, I want this ease, whatever it is. And so we pray to God, oh, please give us all this stuff. But what God wants us to do is to lay down our life, give it to him, do what he wants from us, give him whatever he wants, and then sit back and say, okay, God's going to take care of me. I know that sounds to some of you like a pipe dream. To some of you it sounds impossible. 
All I can say is, to the extent that I've practiced it, I know it's true. I know that the joy I'm going to have when that old guy comes to faith in Christ is going to be better than the joy I would have had reading a paper every day. I know that. And I won't be in the baptistry with him someday going, boy, I sure wish I'd spent more time on the paper. I know it's so silly, isn't it? But when we're down there in the trench trying to make that sacrificial decision, it's so hard. Story is told of a husband who felt great love for his wife after she cooked him a wonderful meal. And he was so moved that he began to speak in kind of elo- eloquent, you know, poetic kind of language. And I'd climb the highest mountain to be with you, and I'd swim the widest ocean, and I'd cross the burning desert to be with you. And, and his wife's in the kitchen, and she says, How about if you just come wash the dishes? That's all God's asking from us, folks. He's not asking you to climb the mountains. He's asking you to wash the dishes. But that's the battle, isn't it? It's easy to sit there and say, oh, I do this and I do that. Why don't you just do this? Lay down your life. Serve those around you. Christian, God wants you to put yourself aside and help someone wash the dishes. Jesus said that the virtue of love is the chief mark of a Christian and that chief mark is chiefly known by laying down our lives and caring about other people father the battle of self-centeredness has not been won in my life and you know that there may have been some victories but there will be many more skirmishes And I just ask you to help me trust you enough to lay down my life. Oh, Lord. And I ask for all of of these people here that you will help them to lay down their lives so they can know the joy that you intend for their discipleship. And Father, I pray that the laying down of their lives would contribute to people becoming disciples and that you would give us the joy of seeing our sacrifices at work in people's lives. I pray in Christ's name, amen.